0: chapter 15 and let's start at verse 1 and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses you cannot be saved so there were people who wanted to follow the Lord but they were clearly teaching something that just wasn't quite biblical they were telling the Gentiles, the people that had accepted Christ, the non-Jews, they said, if you want to follow him, if you want to be saved, you must be circumcised. Now, of course, does everybody understand why they would say that? Why would these Jewish people tell Gentiles that? Because for the previous 1,500 years, God had given to the whole nation of Israel a manner, a recipe for being in his good graces. For being saved, for being a believer, for being a follower of God, the males were required to be circumcised. Now, you know, a lot of us read this today, and this doesn't even really mean much, but back here in this time, imagine being the Jewish nation. You were the people that God verbally said, He wrote down, I have chosen you. They were a group of people that were set aside, they were special There's Old Testament verses that use the language of they were the apple of God's eye. And we all know that doesn't mean that they did everything right. Far from it. But yet God still picked them. And he met with them. The Bible tells us that the oracles of God, the handwriting that we got of what God's message was, it was given to them. To Moses and to all of their prophets. So, at this time, when this is being written and lived in the book of Acts, there's an enormous uh, ingredient that is missing today when especially us here in America we're this big melting pot where we have all different nationalities and races, creeds, colors. to us it we really really don't even think that much of it, but to them, it was very tribal it was very uh, nationality meant everything. so for them, the idea of These non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, they want to be saved. They want to follow Jesus of Nazareth. What do they have to do to be saved? Do they have to become one of us? And you're going to see here this question arises. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. See, Paul and Barnabas are telling them, you can't tell people that. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. This became a big deal. Verse 3, being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. So they're starting to spread the word that, listen, we've been preaching outside of Israel to the Gentile people, and tons of them are getting saved. So these Jewish people are hearing this. Well, people outside of Israel, how could it possibly be that they could be saved? In verse 4, when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees. What nationality would they be? Clearly Jewish. Some of the Jewish of the Jewish. But look what it says about this. Remember, I only remember reading that the Pharisees were the ones that plotted to kill Jesus, which they did. But Look what this verse says. There rose up certain or some of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. See, There were some of the Pharisees that became disciples. Do you remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3 he became a believer the bible tells us he came to jesus what time of day at nighttime cuz he was scared he knew these people my friends my fellow pharisees find out i'm visiting jesus i could be on the chopping block he i'm sure he overheard he knew he might have been in the councils when they were <coughs> describing how they were going to plot to kill jesus but some of them did Still believe. And this is talking about some of them. They believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And just a a quick point before we move on from here there were two groups of Jewish leaders, kind of, the Pharisees, and what was the other group? The Sadducees. Here and in The Gospels, we can find some examples where some Pharisees believed in Jesus. What about the Sadducees? Now to be a Sadducee, you kind of had to believe there was no such thing as the resurrection. There is no biblical evidence that I can find there's not one person who was a Sadducee that the Bible tells us became a believer. I think that's significant. But there were some of these Pharisees that did believe. But the ones that did believe, what did they think that people had to do to get saved? They thought, well, you know, if you're, if you're saved, that's great, but everything's identified through the Jewish culture. You've you got to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Boy, I am so thankful that this part is in the Bible because this story goes on, and that's what we're talking about tonight. You don't have to be under the law, follow the law of Moses. The, what's that word? The ceremonial law. Part of the law was the Ten Commandments. And we are supposed to follow that. We're supposed to live by that. The Bible even tells us that if you have a new heart, God has written that stuff on your heart. It's in your conscience. You just know. I'm not supposed to do those ten things. But there was a whole list of things. How you washed before you ate what you had to wash and wear before you could go to the temple. All kinds of things that we're thankful we don't have to deal with today. And before we just move on from that, let's turn and look at some of these examples. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Uh, Excuse me, Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5. Early on in Jesus' ministry... And he was asked some questions, and he's teaching about the law. You can bet he had to deal with this law. The law, uh, the Jewish law, was first and foremost in their being, in their mind. Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Now he's addressing what topic? The purpose for his coming. He's telling them, first off, why he didn't come. and He's going to get to why he did come. He did not come to destroy the law. That means God didn't decide that what I gave them was wrong and it just needs to be destroyed. Jesus said not to destroy it, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That puts it in a different perspective. He didn't come to just wipe it away and destroy it. Not at all. He came to fulfill the requirements. Of that law, and See, that gives you an insight into the God that we serve. If there were requirements, it shows you that God was serious about the law that he handed down to Moses. Now They added to it, perverted some of it. Jesus even addressed that talking about adultery and a few other topics. He told them how you have stretched it. Your tradition is making my commandment of no effect. They added traditions to the law that did not line up with the law. But what Jesus is talking about here, the law that was given to the Jewish nation, Jesus' life was meant to take care of all the requirements that mankind had to go through to get back to God. That's a very important point, because it tells us that one word we can use to describe our God, He is legal. He's not legalistic. He doesn't do things just for the sake of doing things. He's legal, meaning he set something down. He doesn't just wipe away our memory so that we never heard him say that he told us to follow it. He deals with that law. What did that law require to deal with sin? One word. Required blood. That's why the Old Testament is so bloody. They were, they were sacrificing animals all the time. It, the Bible even tells us the day that Jesus died on the cross, that there was something going on in the temple. It was the day of Passover. They were sacrificing a lamb that very day. What they didn't know is that God's Son was hanging outside on a cross, paying the penalty, fulfilling the requirements of all of the law, so that nobody would ever have to follow the law again. How do you go through the law? You go through Christ. His blood is the end of the law for every believer. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. He said, this is the purpose I came. See, look at verse 18. For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass. That sounds like a, a big deal. You're telling me there's coming a day where both heaven and earth are going to pass? Yes, it is. Can you think of a bigger physical event than heaven and earth being destroyed? Passing away? Jesus pulls that event out to make a comparison. Heaven and earth is going to pass away one day, but until it does, not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until... All be fulfilled. You know what was on Jesus' mind most of the time he was here? Taking care of all those requirements. The law. Follow his life down through all the things that he did. You know there's a reason he was baptized of John the Baptist. There's a reason his parents went to the temple eight days after he was born. It tells us to fulfill the requirements of the law. His entire life was to fulfill the law and become that sacrificial lamb that was the end of it. Finally, the perfect pure blood was sacrificed and that's why we never do it anymore. But see, we just, on this side of the cross, we read our Bible without ever thinking about the law. Back here at this time, it was not just on everybody's mind, it was in their daily activity. Going to purchase a land from some rancher so I can go to the temple and take care of my family's sin. That kind of stuff happened every day. All day. Washing before they ate. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 21. We're going to spend the first 20 minutes or so, we're making the distinction, the Bible makes a huge distinction between Jews and Gentiles. At least it does in some circumstances. Matthew 15, verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. That's not Israel. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil." But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I I thought Jesus was for everybody. Well, he is. He clearly is. But first of all, he was first sent to who? To his brethren, the Jews. It's their Messiah. The promises throughout the Old Testament was that he would come to them. This little story of Jesus meeting this person, it, it even gets more direct. Verse 25, Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So she's desperate. And he answered in verse 26 and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. It's almost kind of hard to read, isn't it? Our Savior, is He really calling somebody dog? Well, what He's pointing out is that He's talking about the children's bread. And that's the children of the kingdom or the children of Israel. Jesus was specifically sent to Israel. Now, we skip ahead in the story. we, We know how that went. They rejected Him. And once they rejected him, then what? Then that message went to the whole world. But the Bible, first, it clearly points out Jesus was sent to the nation of Israel, Jewish people. And there's a lot of things in the Gospels that don't really ring true to our ear, don't make sense, unless you understand at this time in history there was an enormous distinction between the nation of Israel and anybody else. Especially in their eyes. And Jesus is hes kind of going along with it here early in the ministry. Now in verse 27, she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from the very hour. According to Jesus' words, why did that lady get what she wanted? What was the ingredient she had that brought it to pass in her life? Faith. And this is our connection. If you're not a Jewish person, you're not born a Jew, you're not born one of the chosen people, yet the Bible, the New Testament, spends a great amount of time teaching us that it is by faith, That we are saved. This woman believed in Jesus. So much so that his disciples said, get out of here. We've already talked to the master. He said, get away. She forces her way in there, basically. Talks to him. And Jesus sees her faith and says, I'm not coming where you are. But according to your faith, let it be made unto you. Your daughter is healed. Now, what, what goes through your mind? What Old Testament story goes through your mind when you hear Jesus tell her, Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt, great is your faith. I can tell you what jumps into my mind. Abraham. Because Abraham believed God, and he is the father of our faith. Because Abraham just heard the voice and he believed it so much so that God said I'm imputing righteousness to you. You're now in right standing with me just because you believe you have faith in what I'm telling you. And when you get to the New Testament, what does it point out? That if you believe like Abraham did, if you believe what he did, if you believe who God is, then you now become what? Abraham's Seed or his child. And Abraham was basically the beginning of the Jewish nation. See, the New Testament paints it that spiritually speaking in the eyes of the old, what the Jew was in the Old Testament, if you're a believer, if you believe in Jesus, in the story of God's redemption, you then become one of Abraham's children, one of his seed. And see, a lot of Christians read that, it doesn't mean anything to them. Even if they know who Abraham is, it still doesn't mean much to them. But if you're in Old Testament times, there's a reason you can't really go into the Old Testament and find a whole lot about Russia or China or Mongolia or Chad, the Ivory Coast, Jamaica, Brazil. Those nations are not prominent in there because it's a story of Israel, of God's dealing with them. But Jesus said, I've come to fulfill all the requirements of that Jewish law so that whoever believes that law, does ha- it has no effect on them. The requirements are met. Now, in our world, have you ever had trouble with the law? Have you ever had to go before the law to prove something that was kind of hard to prove? I've heard stories about people having to go to the IRS and prove that they are residents of a certain state, because some states don't have an income tax, for example. And maybe they moved from a state like, say, Illinois, that has really high taxes, and they want to move to, say, Florida. where they don't even have an income tax, thank goodness. And moving there, the IRS wants to know for sure, are you really living there? And they're required to prove that they live six months and a day in Florida. You know how hard it is to prove that you're there Every single day. The law is difficult sometimes. It's not fair sometimes. But what Jesus' blood did for all of us, you step into that courtroom, and as soon as you step in, you hear the gavel. Boom. You are innocent. And you now have a legal shield over you. See, when you know that, when you know that the gavel has, the decision has been made over your life by the judge. Wow, what a relief that is. Because now you know, not only do I not have to come in here anymore, I've been before him, he knows my face, he associates me with guilty or innocent. He associates me with innocent. If I saw him in the, in the donut shop, he might even wink at me, Yeah, you're, you're innocent. When you've been before the judge and you know what the gavel means, totally different. Turn to Luke 4. 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 4. And let's look at verse 24. Uh, Verse 25. Jesus talking, Luke 4.25. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. What's Jesus talking about? Talking about different cities and different diseases, and there's a widow and a prophet, but what is the purpose of the story he's talking about? See, we can read this for the first 40 years of our life and never have any clue what Jesus is getting at. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, many widows were where? So he's pointing out that in the days of Elijah, there were a lot of widows in Israel. When the heavens were shut up three and a half years, when great famine was throughout the land, he's just referring back to the time of Elijah when Elijah was there, and there was famine because he himself, by God's command, had said, it "Ain't gonna rain here." There's a famine for three and a half years, so it was terrible. The next verse says, "But," so now he's going to go in a different direction. He's drawing a contrast. But unto none of them, who's the them? Widows in Israel. Unto none of them was Elijah sent. Jesus is drawing a distinction. There were lots of widows. He didn't send Elijah to the widows in Israel, but he did send Elijah where? Unto the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. All Jesus is pointing out is that God can send his prophets anywhere he wants. And these Jewish people are hearing this and they're, they're hearing Jesus say there was tons of need. There were tons of widow that had trouble that may have even been starving in Israel. But because there was so such such disobedience in the land, guess where God sent Elijah? He sent him somewhere other than Israel. He sent him to a Gentile woman. And if you think that we're reading that wrong, look at the next verse. Verse 27 And many lepers were where? In Israel, in the time of Elisha, the prophet. None of them was cleansed except who? And it doesn't just say Naaman. It tells you so you know where he's from. Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus is saying, uh, you Jewish guys, listen. There were a lot of lepers in Elisha's time in Israel, but I didn't send Elisha to any of those. I sent him to a different country that had the same issue. There was a leper in Syria named Naaman. And that's where I sent him. What's the next verse say? 28. And All they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with... Why are they so angry? Because Jesus is telling them that, yes, you guys were the chosen people. I picked you out of all the nations. But because of your disobedience, I was forced to. I went somewhere else. The whole reason for talking about Elijah and the widow, and Elijah and the widow, and Elisha and the lepers, is to draw, draw a distinction between Jew versus Gentile and the Jewish people, they they got very mad. They thrust him out of the city in verse 29, and they were going to kill him. You know, we could do an entire Bible study on just the times where the Jewish people got so mad they were going to kill him. And one of the things you need to always recognize when those passages are discovered is that you're dealing with something that must be pretty important. Why would they want to kill him over this? He said a lot of things to people, and they didn't try to kill him. But this... He simply pointed out that there were lepers in Israel. I didn't send them to Israel. There were widows in Israel. But I didn't send Elijah to those widows. I sent him to one in that foreign country. He's drawing a distinction between Jew and Gentile. And we Americans, we read our Bible and all we think is, well, it's just talking about different countries and some geography. We don't even think there's any significance to it. It's 100% of the significance. And he's pointing out there is a difference between Jew and Gentile, at least outside the church. Because when we read our New Testament, what do we find out about everybody, whether you're Jew or Gentile? If you believe in Christ, then what? There's no distinction. Your nationality, your skin color, your parentage, your heritage, it means zero. God could care less about that. It's all wiped away at the foot of the cross. If you believe in Christ, we are all one. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 to look at that quick. Galatians chapter 3. You know, this is a hard thing because, as we pointed out earlier, in our world today, nationality, it just doesn't mean much. You can get on a plane and you can fly anywhere around the world tomorrow anywhere nationality doesn't mean that much it did back then galatians chapter three look at verse 26 for ye are all the children of god by faith in christ jesus how do you get to be in good standing with god it's it's not by nationality anymore It's not by your physical act of following rituals like circumcision anymore. None of that stuff means anything. It's by faith, by your belief in Christ. Verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. Do you see how advanced culturally Christianity is? There, are, there is a group of people in our country especially that want to accuse the Christian world, us Christians, and they would probably identify us as conservative Christians. And they hate us. They, they accuse us of being backwards of we hate women, we hold women in contempt, and we we don't give them their freedom. They say all kinds of things about us that simply aren't true. The Bible, 2,000 years ago, set women free. The Christian religion is what eradicated the differences, even between distinctions, politically, equality before the law, in terms of even male and female. That's what that says there. There's neither male nor female in God's eyes when it comes to your righteousness. See, today, go to Islamic countries and try to tell them that women are as righteous before God as men. Have the same rights. You're going to be in trouble. Christianity from the beginning. And this is why throughout history, go study history and find out what happens when the gospel got taken to different parts of the world. What happened? Their women were brought up to equality. The differences between nationalities started to melt. Wherever Christianity went, this message went with it, that whoever believes in Christ, you're all equal at the foot of the cross. There's no distinctions. This is one of the reasons why America became what it is, what it was. These kind of verses help separate us and put us all on an equal footing. Try having a democracy where everybody's supposed to be equal, but the religious system says, well, a woman's testimony in court, you need five women for the testimony of one man. Equality isn't going to go well. Our religion at the beginning, this Christianity, do you see how it was compatible with equality? Equality. Verse 29, and if you be Christ's, if you're in him, if you're one of his, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now it takes us back. Once we realize you're equal, now it points out, all right, look, now we're going back to Abraham and we're going to be identified with him because there were promises made to Abraham. Yeah. You want to be Abraham's seed. The Bible calls him God's friend. He was a friend of God. Abraham was a big fella in the Bible. And being identified as one of Abraham's kids, let's think about it for a minute. How did it go between Isaac and Ishmael? It was trouble because the promise went to one of them. What about Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau were going to fight to the death over this identification. Who did the promise go to? That's what it was all about. Who is God's promise going to descend upon? They fought existential wars over this. And they still do today. Over this idea. Now, we have spent 25 minutes getting a pretty good idea now, biblically, the difference between Jew and Gentile. Huge difference. Except, when you get into Christ, see how it all just melts away? We're all the same. But Let's go back to Acts chapter 15. And we're very early on in the church. The church of the Lord. And what we mean by that is all believers. If you believe in Christ, you are part of, quote, The church. We're not talking about a Methodist church, a Lutheran church, a Baptist church. Those are denominations. We're talking about what the Bible just calls the general church, the gathering of believers. So Acts 15, verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto the men, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's Peter talking about? When he says, It was by my mouth that I went to the Gentiles. See, God told Peter, you, you go tell those Gentile people. Because as a group, yes, there were Jewish believers, but as a group, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah to such a degree that he died. Now that's a huge, huge thing. I'm not at all pointing that out to try to stir up some anti-Jewish sentiment. That's not at all. When we get through with this, you're going to see how it, it all circles back to Israel. God's not done with them. But we, what we're seeing here is this, the group of early disciples had to come to some understanding. So Peter says then in verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. Peter says, when we went to the Gentiles, <laughs> preached to them, what did God give them as a sign that they're believers? Gave them the Holy Ghost, just like he gave us. So Peter is putting on evidence to say, There's no difference. God gave them the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, And he put no difference between us and them. Notice the us and them language. Very prominent back then, and for good reason. Purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What is the yoke that Peter is describing? Peter said these Jewish people are believers. Why are you trying to put a yoke on their neck? He's talking about the law. They've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law of Moses. You've got to know Leviticus inside and out. Peter is saying our forefathers that God handed it to, they couldn't follow it. We in our day, we can't follow. It can't be done. And that's what the New Testament teaches. What was the purpose of the law? To point out that we miss it all the time. We miss God's mark. The law proves to us that we're sinners. And since you can't follow the law, how are you going to get to God? Through faith. Through faith that Jesus took care of it for me. Verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they... Peter's pointing out that even us Jews, we don't have to follow the law. We are saved by grace. Verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silence. They're shocked. And gave audience to Barnabas and Paul declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So Paul and Barnabas have been out in the Gentile world. They've preached. They saw these miracles. They're hearing the reports of it. Starting to sink in that, well, well God has made a way for everybody to get to him, not just Israel. Verse 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen up. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. What's that describing? That's describing where God first, out of all the Gentile worlds, picked Abraham and started the Jewish nation. It's very important. Look at verse 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, After this I will return. After this I will (coughs) return. See, if there's a phrase, I will return, what does that imply? What does it mean if I told all of you, I've got to leave for about ten minutes, but I'll be back. I'll return. It means I left, but to leave I also had to first, had to first be here. In this verse and in this prophecy is the two comings of Jesus Christ. James knows his Bible well enough. And he's telling these fellows, listen, God did come to the Gentile world and he started the Jewish nation with Abraham. He picked us out. But it says, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. In James's time, Was the throne of David, the tabernacle of David, David standing? It was not. This verse says, and this is Amos chapter 9 verse 11 is what he's quoting. That after this, after his first coming, there's going to be a certain amount of time pass, And that gap, that distance so far has been about 2,000 years. After this, what is he going to do? He is going to return and he will build again the tabernacle of David which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and will set it up. Why would the Bible include a promise that seemingly says Jesus is going to come back here and set up that throne of David again? See, the throne of David is a Jewish thing. It only, you would never look for the throne of David in Washington, D.C. or Beijing or Moscow. What does the throne of David, what geographical place does that even imply? Israel and probably more specifically Jerusalem. That's the only place that even makes sense. James is pointing out, because here's, here was the whole discussion. These guys are talking and they're hearing God can save Gentile people and they don't have to become one of us. They don't have to follow Jewish law to be saved. Now if that's the case, here's the big deal people, listen up. If the Gentiles don't have to follow Jewish law to be saved, what that implies is, what is going to become of Israel? See, if if people in Syria don't need the Jewish nation to be saved, and they don't, What is going to become of Israel? Who up to the time of this writing had been the only way that God dealt with the earth. See, that's what was on their mind. If those people, if those Russians, Chinese, Brazilians, if they don't need us, they don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to even know about our law, they just believe on Jesus, then what is going to become of the nation of Israel? So this is why James then says, but after this, After he picked out the nation of Israel, it says he would return. That means coming twice. But on his second time, when he returns, he's going to do what? Yes. He's going to rebuild that sucker. Why? For what purpose? Why is Jesus going to rebuild David's throne? Because he's going to sit on it and rule the earth. Now again, having David's, David's throne implies a Jewish nation. David's throne would mean nothing sitting down at our, corn, our, our courthouse here in Hebron in America. It would mean nothing. Nobody would even recognize what it was. It only makes sense. He's talking here that at the end times... Jesus is going to come back. And he is going to build again the tabernacle of David and he's going to rule the earth from Jerusalem. And this was the discussion at the time of the disciples. Because they started to realize all these non-Jewish people getting saved, well, what's what's going to happen with the nation of Israel? Are we just going to disappear? Well, in fact... In a way of speaking, for about 2,000 years, they did disappear in a way. They were disseminated, they were dispersed throughout every other nation on earth. And this is why it is so significant in the time that you live in. Where are they at now? They're all gathering over there. You want to know what God's timepiece is, what His watch is? You look at Israel. If somebody in here was living before 1948. And we have a few. Maybe in your childhood, some of these verses wouldn't even mean anything. That Israel had to be reconstituted? Pfft, how's that going to happen? I mean, over there in Europe, they're, they're killing every single one of them they find. There probably won't even be a Jew in about three more years. And yet, God has worked it out. Till after that disaster, He started to collect, they're bringing them home. And the promise of them being regathered for the second time, it's happened in your life. You ever thought, man, I would have liked to have been at the Red Sea when God... I would have liked to have been back in Abraham's time when God talked to him up on that mountain when he was sacrificing Isaac. There is an event that is, I will put, as significant as those. The Bible says, think in Ezekiel, that there's going to come a time when the world will no longer say that God that brought the people out of Egypt. Now it says that hundreds of times throughout the Bible. That was such a big deal that God took his slave nation out of Egypt, went through the Red Sea, and went into the Promised Land. That was such a big deal. That phrase is hundreds of times found in your Bible. And the Bible says there's going to come a time where nobody will say that again. They won't even remember that because of the second time that he regathers them. What they will say is how God brought them out of the north, the east, the south, the west. He went throughout all the world and reconstituted them back to one tiny little place where it all started. And that has happened. Or at least it's a long way down the process. The fact that there is a nation of Israel today is one of the biggest proves that your Bible is true. It's an impossibility for that to exist without God. It could not happen. A people that had lost their land, lost their culture, lost everything, and were just scattered throughout the earth for 2,000 years. To be reconstituted, that's a miracle of miracles. And it is the thing that's over there on the globe screaming to the world, "You, you better get ready. Because what James talked about is about ready to happen. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. So in James's time and in those disciples, they thought if the rest of the world, the Gentiles, don't have to become a Jew to be saved, then you know what's going to become of us? James points out, we in effect he's implying we are going to disappear for a while, our, our importance. Throughout the church time, what we would maybe call the church age, Israel didn't really even exist. The fact that they're reconstituted over there kind of tells us that the church age is coming to a close. And James is pointing out that after this, he's coming back and he's going to rebuild this thing. And this is why the idea of the the distinction between the church and Israel, do you see how mutually exclusive they are? You can be be a Jew and go into the church, but when you do, you lose what distinction? If you're an Israelite, Israeli, and you accept Christ, biblically speaking, you're not even a Jew anymore. We just read the verse that said, In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or free. We don't even have those distinctions in the church. But the Bible speaking, those two things are very much, kind of, separated in a way. This is why it's kind of easy to see in the Bible that when God removes His church out of here at the rapture, how's He going to deal with the world? He's going to have that nation of Israel again to deal with, just like He did during David, Moses, Nehemiah, Abraham. He's going to deal with the world through Israel. This is why, when you read your book of Revelation, it sure sounds like a Jewish book. There's all kinds of Jewish references, titles. Because when we're out of here, God is going to deal with this world through Israel again, and it sure isn't going to be necessarily a great time for Israel because of their iniquity. Now, there's a promise at the end, but they are going to be put through the fire. It's hard to even talk about. You know how bad World War II was for that group of people? It's going to get worse. The Bible says, Jesus even said, there's going to be a time of tribulation like nobody has ever seen. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. There is a promise at the end for them, but they have to be purified through the fire, unfortunately. Unfortunately. This is why being saved, being part of the church, is so drastically important. God views that special group of people so differently. Paul talks about it in his epistles. That this just blew his mind. He could not believe that this thing, as Paul said, that had been hidden from the foundation of the world. What was he talking about? The church, that group of people. <coughs> That God just so blesses when they believe in His Son. There's an entire period of time set aside for them. And when it is full, when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, when the last number comes in, God's going to remove that people out of here. And then the only distinction left is there's Israel and there's the world down there. They're all in trouble. But he's using the world to purify Israel. That's why I get my Israeli vacations out of the way now. Because you don't want to get caught over there when this thing starts. The Bible talks about the number of women that will be ravished, the houses that will be destroyed, the, pot, the percentage of population that will die. It's going to be terrible. But after, at the end of it, the whole purpose of the tribulation time period is what? What's the purpose of that terrible time? To get the nation of Israel to look where? Lord, Lord, we, we, we missed it. Jesus was our Messiah. Please get Him back here. We accept Him. He's ours. And at the end, Jesus is going to come back and He is going to destroy their enemies. But first, <coughs> it's not going to be good. So what Acts chapter 15 is describing... James the Apostle, he nails it. And he uses the Old Testament that there's going to be a period of judgment that is coming. And after Jesus is going to rebuild that tabernacle of David, he's going to rule on the earth as a potentate, as a dictator. We're finally going to have found a benevolent dictator, he's going to be perfect. And that's why all authority, all rule, all power is in his hand. He has won it. Now, people, he didn't win it just to set it on the shelf. He's going to use it and put it into practice on the throne. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would always have us open to your plan, that we would always be able to perceive the things, the workings that you do here in this earth, Open our eyes, Lord, that we can follow you, that we can see your movements in this earth so that we can align our lives with its truth. Lord, we pray for Pastor and Tiff right now that wherever they are, you keep, you guard, and protect them, that they live under an open heaven, that they would have health, peace, and joy in their home. In Jesus' name, amen.